0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, family. You're awake now. I noticed this morning uh, Carol was not on the piano because I think for the first time in 22 years she and Chuck were at different campuses. She's helping downtown. And this morning, I've just kind of had the thought in my head, no, I haven't seen Gabe and Rebecca Zapeta in a long time. So I texted Gabe. He's helping at North Campus this morning. So he's still around. We miss them, though, very much. I am going to pray and introduce the text, and then we will dive in together. Pray with me, please. So, Father, we ask for grace now for your blood family to hear your voice, in as much as this sermon accurately represents your word. So we need grace grace for ears, grace for hearts, grace for my mouth and my heart, Lord. So be gracious to us as we feast now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I was thinking about this text and preparing over the last few weeks. I was constantly drawn back to this concept, this idea of labels. So our text today and just frankly the world in which we live right now is saturated with labels, titles, um, things that people think of and then they put a name on each other. So people who have different political persuasions, label each other all kinds of different things. Are you a Marxist? Are you a snowflake? Are you a fascist? Are you a supremacist of one kind or another. Our social media is filled up with all kinds of slogans and all kinds of things relating to what lives matter. And we often in our minds probably think and begin to label people based on what their social media says. If you're a teenager, you're in the in crowd, or you're in the out crowd. Or maybe that's the us crowd, and the them crowd, perhaps. and. Uh, word to the wise that doesn't change when you become an adult. Those kinds of things, those kinds of labels continue. Often, these labels are just kind of pejorative, like, like demeaning, disapproving that others use. It can be individual. 2019 and 2020 was the year of Karen, which, my apologies to everybody here whose name is Karen, that your name is now used as a, a uh, title, a, a slam, a, an insult. It can be corporate. Are you one of those evangelicals? Whatever that means in our political discourse. I heard a saying one time that was said tongue-in-cheek, but I think it reveals something. Someone I knew said that stereotypes are great because they make life easy which they were meaning to say, in essence, stereotypes are great because we can be lazy then. It takes time to nuance. It takes time to think about each other as complex beings made in God's image. It's often easier to just, here's a label, and we move on. We can even do that about our own self-identities, right? So last night, uh, you probably, well, it was the biggest fireworks show that I've ever seen or been a part of, And it was all in my neighborhood because all of the actual fireworks shows were shut down. And for like two hours, it was like, don't they know that I have a child asleep, several children asleep, and they don't sleep well normally? Anyways, we take the title or the label American, and we apply it to ourselves, if you were born here or you've become an American citizen. Last night, perhaps you watched those fireworks and you were like, yes. I'm stirred. Thank you, God, for giving me this nation. In America, our identity has often been intermeshed. Labels that we use are often co-used for our Christianity. So sometimes we think of, oh, to be an American, and the best version of that is to be a Christian. You look at the Mayflower Compact, you look at the pilgrims that came over on the Mayflower and the Puritans that settled about 20 miles away from them in Massachusetts. And what they thought of themselves as as coming to this new land in America was they were going to be a city on a hill, a shining example of God's glory. They filled their documents with language taken from the Bible and used for, oh, we're going to be in America this Christian nation, a place for God's exiles to gather. The language surrounding the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and other founding documents has similar things about divine pleasure and providence, such that many did think of America as a light on a hill where they took biblical labels meant for the church and they applied them to America. So many have thought that to be the best version of an American or to be the best version of America for so much of our history as to be some kind of Christian nation, or at least influenced by Christian ideals and morals. And so when we turn to our day and age and 244 years of American history, and we look and we say, we have been very fortunate to be in a land where Christianity is so heralded and so intermeshed with some of our original founders and their documents. But that is really, really unusual in the course of history. Two millennia of history from the time of Christ till now tells us what is the norm for those that identify as Christians. And even before that, 1,500 years from Abraham all the way through to Christ, the people of God were not thought well of, but thought poorly of. So the Holy Spirit, speaking through the Apostle Peter in our text today, speaks to such realities like labels and what our identity is and what kind of labels the surrounding culture places on those that are Christ's. But what matters most of all is not what labels we put on each other, what labels we put on ourselves, but what God labels us. That is the most important thing by far, and that's what our text talks about today. So I'm going to pray again. Pray with me as we launch into looking at this text. So help, Father, help us to ground our identity, turn our hearts to Christ even in this time. Oh, we need help in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a time machine. Let's go back in time. What's going on for Peter's audience back in 1 Peter, this letter that he wrote to Christians in the dispersion. How were they labeled by the culture surrounding them? How did they identify themselves? And especially, what did they think of themselves before they were Christians? Were they Jewish outsiders to the broader pagan world? Well, I think, we're going to bounce around to a few texts in 1 Peter here, I think that they were not an exclusively Jewish audience, but Many of them, maybe a majority of them, were actually Gentile converts to Christianity, and that matters. That matters for how they view themselves and how we view ourselves. So back in 1 Peter one 14, we're told that the audience, that uh, Peter's audience, was not to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance about God. And then a few verses later, in chapter 1, verse 18, Peter tells them that they were ransomed from the feudal ways handed down from their forefathers, so that word feudal Empty is another alternative translation for it. It's commonly used in the New Testament And then in the Greek version of the Old Testament for pagan worship feudal worship worship That's ignorant about God. So in Acts 14 verse 15 Paul looks at the so he's in the city of Lystra and this is where Paul, like the the he does a miracle, and the people like throw themselves down and start worshiping him. They're like, the great gods are among us, whoa! And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't be don't be thinking that this is like that kind of worship. No, that's empty worship, that's vain worship, pagan worship. And then in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus and Jeremiah, again the Greek translation of that Old Testament that many of the earliest Christians would have used, because they didn't know Hebrew. The, words for, the word for empty or vain is used for pagan worship. So now check out 1 Peter chapter 4, verses one through five. You can turn there with me. 1 Peter 4, one through five, because I think this really confirms this, that this audience of Peter's was not exclusively Jewish, but maybe majority Gentile. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time is, that is past passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. No longer for human passions and for the time is past. point to something profound as well as the fact that the, the culture surrounding Peter's audience was surprised when they didn't join them in this. Some of them in their former life lived in debauched pagan worship. What's also surprising here is the label that Peter puts on their surrounding culture. He calls them Gentiles. The Gentiles are surprised when you don't join them. But apparently some of Peter's audience, they are Gentiles. So what is Peter doing when he says, look, the the Gentiles are surprised, okay? This knowledge that Peter's audience includes Gentiles, and what we saw back in Verse 4 and 5, last week when Pastor Dave preached, that this group of people, not only Jews, but also Gentiles, are being made into a spiritual house, a temple for God, having been called out of darkness into light, should like make us stop and say, Whoa, what is God doing here? What is God doing? He's taking people that were formerly pagan and bringing them into his temple, and then he's separating them out and saying, Everybody else, they're Gentiles. What's going on? How is Peter using language here? Whatever other labels their society might have put on them, whatever identity they might have taken for themselves, what we heard last week is they've got a new identity. They've got a new identity in Christ as he's using them to build his temple in verses 4 and 5. So that brings us all the way up. That's an extended introduction. That brings us all the way up to our text today. And so you should have an outline there that shows how we're breaking apart the text. First, the chosen cornerstone in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. What's happening in verses 6 through 8? Really simple. Peter is explaining with three Old Testament quotations what he just said in verses 4 and 5. What's going on? Is this just like, oh, yeah, like this is like a, oh, surprise! Surprise, the church! No! this was predicted in the old testament hundreds of years beforehand what do we see here peter is showing that the destiny of those who are the spiritual house of god and those who reject god is all predicted in the old testament and the linchpin of every individual's destiny is this one question what will you do with jesus the christ Not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the universe. What will you do with him? That's what Peter is uncovering here. First, Peter quotes from Isaiah 28, 16, in verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter did this earlier in his life. Do you remember Acts chapter 4? Acts chapter 4 is where Peter and the other disciples, they were in the temple shortly after Jesus was crucified, just a few weeks later, and they heal a man in the temple, and the Jewish authorities freak out. They grab Peter. They bring him before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and Peter highlights, he quotes uh, from the Old Testament, and he highlights this idea of cornerstones. This is Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12. He's responding to the Jewish authorities, explaining why I'm not going to shut up about Jesus. He says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, Yet under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name, everyone's destiny, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of gender, hangs on one question. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Now, an aside here, this is just like mini parentheses. I thought of this as I was doing, so take this for what it is. Notice what Peter doesn't say. There's this text in Mark chapter eight where Peter confesses, "You are the Christ, the Son of God." And in response, Jesus says to Peter, "This is true. This has only been revealed to you by the Father. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." So I'm a former, formerly a Roman Catholic. This is commonly a text and an appeal for everyone, uh, particularly in Roman Catholic church to say, look, the first pope. Look, the first bishop. Look, Jesus is going to build everything on Peter. And Peter is saying here in 1 Peter 2, I'm not the cornerstone. Jesus is. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the bedrock on which the whole of the new temple of God stands. And note, too, what Peter says here. The builders that have rejected Jesus are the Jewish authorities gathered there in Jerusalem. And then here he quotes the exact same text in our passage here today in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So how did Peter know that these texts in the Old Testament referred to Jesus? Was he just doing some exegetical jujitsu No, I don't think so. Jesus himself referred to these texts when he said, this is me, in Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20. The very next passage that Peter uses in Isaiah 8.14, I'll read it here, this is verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That quotation from Isaiah 8.14 is the same one that Paul uses in Romans 9.33 to say, This was the plan all along. The majority of the Jewish nation is going to reject Jesus, and what that means is the gospel is going to go to everybody. That was part of the plan all along. So what is our passage teaching today? Well, check out the very last little bit of verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, all this background about the Jewish authorities and the Jewish nation rejecting Jesus, that's been used elsewhere in the New Testament, but Peter here seems to apply it to everybody. He universalizes it. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. For his Gentile readers for them to be aware that the persecution that they're enduring and the persecution that's coming from Nero and Diocletian and other Roman emperors, they need to know that what's going on with them is part of destiny. Destiny? What an interesting word. The destinies of everyone are wrapped up in Jesus and what we do with Him, what we believe about Him. And those who reject Him ultimately they do that because it's part of their destiny. Now, we believe at Bethlehem that God foreordains all that is. This is mysterious providence. And this includes the salvation of individuals. Those that believe are found in the last day to have been chosen before the foundation of the world, elect. And that those that do not believe don't believe because in God's mysterious providence he has not elected them. God is sovereign over all to the uttermost, including individual salvation. The elder affirmation of faith says it this way. We believe that God's election is an unconditional act of free grace that was given through his Son, Christ Jesus, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in his Son, Christ Jesus. Now, this text points to that reality. Literally translated, as they were destined to do, it's just, to it's, it's the word for appointed. They were appointed to do this. This is a statement of God's sovereignty over human salvation, and particularly in this text it's meant to be a comfort to Peter's audience. Their persecutors will not get the last word, nor will any who reject Jesus. Indeed, none of us get the last word over our own destiny. Only Jesus does. You are not master of your destiny. You are at the mercy of Jesus. If that lands on you today, you're here and you're not a Christian, you've not yet believed in Jesus. We at Bethlehem believe this is all in the mysterious providence of God. It's revealed in the scriptures. But we don't look at each other and go, wait, which one are you? No, there's one linchpin in the reality that we see one way of knowing who are God's, who aren't. What will you do with Jesus? You're at the mercy of Jesus, but He's merciful. Oh, He's merciful. He lived a perfect life. He died a death we deserve. He didn't stay dead. He got up. He rose from the dead. And he broke the power of death. We know that for sure. He's sitting next to his Father in heaven. And he will someday come again, granting everyone who believes in him final and true reward. The same standing that Jesus has with the Father, he grants to those who believe. This gospel call is the only way any of us can be saved. You can be saved today and be found at the last day to be chosen before the foundation of the world in the love and foreknowledge of God. This is mysterious. We don't don't know how all of this fits together, but the scriptures teach both. God is truly sovereign, and we can't penetrate that sovereignty, and we truly must and are responsible to to Jesus. Now, this text is certainly about individuals, like can, who will be saved, who will be saved, those that run to Jesus, the cornerstone. And I do think that it's also important that these Old Testament texts tie in repeatedly to Israel. So Paul in Romans 9, as I mentioned, Peter in Acts 4, and Jesus himself in the Gospels are all talking about the Jewish leaders and The nation of Israel at large, not entirely, I mean, Peter himself was a Jew, but the nation at large rejected Jesus, and this is significant for when we turn to our second part of this text. In addition to the Gentile persecutors of Peter's audience rejecting Jesus, all, or not all, but the majority of Jewish people rejected him, so God foretold that Israel would reject the Messiah And now Peter is taking all of those texts that are about Israel and applying them universally to everyone who rejects Jesus. So consider where Peter goes next and when he uses texts that talk about the restoration of Israel. So this is verse 9, what I've labeled the chosen nation. Verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Israel, God's chosen race to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, all of those titles from the Old Testament as we're going to see in a moment, many of them, most of them turn their back on Jesus. Indeed, the Jewish authorities sought to have him killed. The cried, the, call, the crowd called out, "Crucify him." And now Peter says, his Jewish readers, believers in Jesus, and non-Jewish readers, also believers in Jesus, are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation of people for God's own possession. Christians, all who believe in Jesus. Jew and Gentile, including Peter himself, are part of this chosen, precious race, this holy new nation. So, why use these labels? He takes Israel rejecting Jesus and rejecting God from the Old Testament, and applies it to everybody who rejects Jesus in the New. And then he takes these texts from the Old Testament, these titles for Israel, and he applies it to the church. So, the first text that is significant for the background here is Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Keep your finger or your bookmark in 1 Peter chapter 2, and please turn with me back to Exodus 19, 5 and 6. In Exodus 19, Israel had been brought out of Egypt, and this is the very moment where Moses is going to take God's words and seal a covenant with Israel, formally, instituting them as God's people. So this is God speaking to Moses, the word that he has to take to the people. This is Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak. To the people of Israel. So, not only the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel, were designed to be priests, but every Israelite, a kingdom of priests. So, the Levites were to be priests within Israel, yes, but Israel was meant to be priests? Priests to who? Priests for what? you read Deuteronomy chapter 4, and then you trace some of the things that are found there in Deuteronomy 4, Moses says, this law that I'm giving to you today will be your wisdom so that when all the nations around look and see the wisdom of God, they will glorify God when they see him among you. Israel in the Old Testament was to have a disposition of what I think we could call evangelism. Not a go and tell, but a come and see. You can write this down just for one particular example of how Deuteronomy 4 is traced throughout your Old Testament. Write down 1 Kings chapter 4 and how Solomon, in his wisdom, when the queen of Sheba comes and says, wow, look at this great wisdom that you have, and she praises God, it's the same phrases taken from Deuteronomy 4. Israel was not just dropped in the middle of warring superpowers in the Old Testament in the ancient Near East for just like, hey, here's one more superpower. They were meant to be a kingdom of priests to the nations surrounding them. Israel was intended to bless the nations by displaying the glory of God. So the Exodus happened, and Exodus 19 is kind of the end of that period in Israel's history where they're taken out of Egypt to be a new nation. The exodus from Egypt happened so that Israel would be made into a great nation to bless the nations. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham. So what about the second major background text? Turn here with me. This is Isaiah 43, 19 through 21. So turn forward with me to Isaiah 43, 19 through 21. So Israel was taken out of the exodus in Egypt and Israel failed over the course of hundreds of years and then they were exiled and taken to Babylon. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, writes about their unexile. What's going to happen when there's a new exodus and they're brought back into the land? This is Isaiah 43, verse 19. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I'm formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Particularly the reason that this is a background text is, again, the Greek Old Testament that most of Peter's audience would have been most familiar with translates that word there for people as race. The word for race that's used in our text today. So, in Isaiah 43, we see the prophecy about Israel being brought back into the land after the exile to Babylon. Just like Adam and Eve before them, they were exiled from God's presence in Jerusalem due to their sin. They did not act as the holy priestly kingdom that they were supposed to before the nations. So God exiled them but Isaiah predicts that there's a time when they will be unexiled, a new exodus out of bondage and into their land. So this exodus from Babylon would happen so that Israel would proclaim God's excellencies to the surrounding nations. They would be made a great nation again so they might be a blessing to the nations. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham. And so now when Peter takes these texts and applies them, to Gentiles and Jews alike in this new spiritual house that God is creating. Whoa, what's happening? How do I put my Bible together? What's what's happening Old Testament and New Testament? This is what Karen Jobs in her excellent commentary, and really it is excellent. I think Jason's quoted from it, Dave has quoted from it, I've quoted from it. It's like my favorite New Testament commentary of all time, and I've read a few of them. So Karen Jobes, she wrote a, a Commentary on First Peter. She says this about this passage. Israel's deliverance from exile in Babylon is the typological forerunner of a greater deliverance achieved by Jesus Christ, deliverance of God's people out of darkness into light. Peter here makes the radical claim that those who believe in Jesus Christ, whether Jew, Gentile, Greek, Roman, Cappadocian, Bithynian, or whatever, though from many races they constitute a new race, of those who have been born again into the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean for you probably in your head just like, well, what about like ethnic Israel? Jews, what what about them? Like, well, read Romans 10 and 11. It's not as though God has cast them out. No, there is a future for them. They have not been replaced by any other ethnic group. No, God is gathering in His people from every ethnic group, including from the Jewish people. And there remains a glorious future for them in Christ. In Christ. This new nation, this new people, this inheritor, perhaps, of these titles for Israel, well, we only do so by the fact that we are connected to the cornerstone, Christ. And I also do think that this means that what the Apostle Peter is saying is that the mission of Israel in the Old Testament, proclaim the excellencies of God, is fulfilled in Jesus' coming, freeing us from bondage to sin so that we might turn and proclaim His excellencies. Jesus came and fulfilled the law and did what Israel did not, displaying the glory of God in full, proclaiming His excellencies and calling many out of darkness into light that they too might proclaim the glory of God and point many to Jesus. So if there's hope for the descendants of Abraham by the flesh, there's hope for any ethnic group, it's in Jesus. It's in the cornerstone. This is a striking contrast to who they were before coming to Christ, which is where we go now as we finish in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This background is just so blazingly obvious. This is Hosea. Remember Hosea, the prophet, the minor prophet? They're called minor prophets because they're shorter than the major prophets. I think they're all pretty major uh, in their own way. So Hosea was told to go and marry a prostitute, Gomer. This was to be a picture Of God's relationship with Israel that Israel kept running and running and running away from God so too Gomer would keep running, 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 and they were to have a couple kids. And God said, you need to name your kids, no mercy and not my people. Those two names were going to be prophetic emblem symbols of this is what my relationship is like with Israel now. I'm not going to have mercy on you you're not going to be my people anymore. But that wasn't the end of the story, even in Hosea. So this is Hosea 2, 19 through 23. There was a promised restoration of Israel. This is what God says. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betrothed You to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Peter takes these texts about the restoration of Israel and he applies it to everybody who finds their faith in Christ. Texts from the Old Testament that were applied to Israel rejecting God are applied to everyone who rejects Jesus in verse 7 and 8. Texts from the Old Testament that were applied to Israel being restored to God are now applied to all who accept Jesus. So what does this mean for us as we conclude? Two just little things as I was meditating. You know, I write a sermon and then you get to like the night before and then the morning of, and I'm constantly modifying, and just like, Lord, what do you want? Here's here's some from the hip kind of stuff. Watch out. All right. What does this mean for us individually? Do you remember what it was like? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But do you remember what it was like? to not have any mercy on you. Do you remember what it was like to not be the people of God? If we just sit and meditate on that, oh, how hopeless is that? Oh, how helpless. Our past is past, but man, this should still shock us. God had mercy on us in Christ. Do you remember? Maybe, maybe you've heard this before. This is Martin Lloyd Jones, famous uh, English preacher. Uh, we quote him fairly often here. Do you know near the end of his life what his daughter said about him when asked, like, why do you think his ministry was so effective? Why do you think he was so in love with God? She said this: He never recovered from God saving him. Never. Never recovered. Have you recovered? Remember the mercy of God in Christ and get unrecovered. (laughs) It's no longer time for talking and behaving and thinking like the Gentiles do, like the nations do. No, you're now connected to the cornerstone. You are Christ's. You're a people together. You're a new nation. Just as God had mercy on Christ, he didn't leave him in the grave. So too he will have mercy on you when he returns. What does this mean then corporately for us? Corporately as a people of God, both here and just broadly speaking, the church. We're to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness and into light. I was just thinking again this morning, what kind of comparison is this? So there's this Broadway musical that just hit Disney Plus called Hamilton, uh, written by a a playwright that focuses on the life of Alexander Hamilton and many of the things surrounding the uh, founding of our nation. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the man that wrote this play and performs in it, or at least in its original Broadway production, um, wrote it as an ode and for the sake of glorifying Alexander Hamilton and our nation. Certainly on just the other side of the 4th of July, a day of independence, we can say, wow, our nation is, look at this, look, watch Hamilton on Disney+, Plus. go to Washington, D.C., as I've done a few times, you see just the, the pomp and just the glory of America. That is a footnote, a drop in the bucket, compared to the glory and the excellencies of our king. America, for all that it is, and all of its faults, and perhaps it is very much a nation that is unlike any other nation that we've ever seen in, in the world, it will still, at the end of days, only be a footnote in the history that our king is writing. So who does God label you as, Christian? a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim His excellencies, the one that called you out of darkness into light, to all the earthly nations, including our own, that are not yet part of this, our heavenly nation. So how do we do this? This is the conclusion. Where's Chuck? Chuck's like, Daniel, you're over time. I know, man. It'll, It'll be okay, right? It'll be okay. In conclusion, two things, two things. Well, just how are we supposed to do this? Well, Pastor Dave's going to be back in the pulpit next week, and verse 11 and 12 is the how in our text. It's actually, it's the how. I was thinking through and praying through and talking with a few about some additional applications that are situated to us right now. How do we in America Think about this. When so many labels are thrown around, and we place them on others, either in our minds or actually. There's so many voices vying for our time. Oh, the news cycle in an election year. Help us endure, Lord. Help us endure. How does this matter for us today in our earthly nation, where our destinies are connected to the cornerstone? We have an identity as a new nation, and our mission is to proclaim to the nations the excellencies of God. First, let me encourage you, Bethlehem Christians, anyone watching, don't call unholy what God has called holy. Or to phrase it another way, who are you to criticize another master's servant? Or to say it another way, why put a label on a brother or sister in Christ and identify them that way when God has already identified them as his own. Even Paul, in the letter to the Corinthians, the first Corinthians, labeled them carnal and worldly, and he's the apostle speaking um, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and yet he still called them brothers and sisters. He had a fundamental way of relating to them as family. that ran deeper than their behavior, and he reminded them who they were, God's people, called out of darkness and into light. Second, Remember that the labels that God places on his people, that he places on you, if you're a believer in Jesus, is your very identity, not a mere label. Don't let other labels become your identity. Reject them if you need to. Don't let them be what defines you. You're not your own. You're brought with a price. So be careful what you think about yourself. Be careful what you think about others glorify God with your body and your social media and your neighboring, your voting in an election year. Third, hear me carefully when I say this one. Don't trade in your relational capital with other people for only temporary purposes. It's an election year. Lots of things are happening on social media where there's all kinds of um, things being said, and we as Christians have freedom to advocate for candidates, policies, purposes that we think are, are right and good. Let me encourage you. Do that as citizens of this nation and do so about the things especially that are nearest to the heart of God, the value of life, justice. Save some capital in your relationships to say hard things about Jesus. If you're going to be giving offense and if you're going to be potentially dividing from others, let it be most about the things that matter most. Jesus alone will be the hope of your friends, your neighbors, your family. Remember, you are elect exiles together according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. We cannot speak out about the division we see in our world if we ourselves are divided from each other about things that will be a mere footnote in history. And then last, fourth application. I invite worship team, you can come on up. Uh, last application. Um, So we come to the table. Today is Communion Sunday. I ask you, consider well the body of Christ. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ.